I think there is a sensitivity around pace of growth as opposed to is there growth. So if I think about adoption, it's the long-term trends are still there. More, more automation of workflow, more automation of jobs, more automation of processes that could be done by, you know, by white-collar workers. Whether that gets sold at the same velocity in 2023 as it would have been sold in 2020 is where you're trying to make a calibration at an investment committee. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Orbit, the HG podcast series, where we speak to leaders and innovators from across the software and technology ecosystem, discussing the key trends changing how we all do business. I'm Matthew Brockman, Managing Partner at HG, and today I'm back after six months from April talking to HG's Head of Research, David Toms, to discuss some of the key trends we're seeing in the software sector over the last quarter. Been another interesting six months in the public markets, David. How would you characterise what we've seen in the last six months? It's been quite amazing when you look at the, I suppose, the cycle we've been through. The, the last six months essentially unwound a lot of the euphoria that we saw during mid-2020 through to 2021. And it, it, you know, essentially, we're back to 2019 in public markets terms. So do you think that's in any way structural or do you think we just saw a bit of a bubble based on free money and you know fiscal response to COVID? Do you, do you see a sort of a, a real fundamental change in the way people are thinking about software investing? So I don't see a fundamental change in the way people are thinking about software investing or the end market. I think the two things that have changed since the end of last year are the interest rate environment, so effectively the cost of capital, and then the other thing that's changed is the expectation of a recession, which I think is now you know, pretty much a nailed uncertainty. So there's a little bit more concern around trading and a slightly higher cost of capital. And it doesn't take much of a change in small elements for you to get potentially large valuation swings. So interesting article, I think it was this very morning on, in the FT about the lack of IPOs in the US market, tech IPOs. That's just investors deciding to sit on cash, is it, do you think? Or is there some, there isn't, that, we shouldn't take that as a kind of signal that people feel they need to be selling software or selling out of tech? It's a reluctance to commit new capital. I think we have to remember the public markets are no longer quite the arbiter they once were. But I was looking at some stats only a couple of days ago, which showed that, in fact, over the last decade, private equity has deployed more new capital each year than public markets. Although everyone thinks public markets are very, very large, mostly you're just trading IOUs between each other, as in share certificates. The actual amount of new capital public markets deliver isn't that large whereas private equity is much more about investing new capital and then you know, selling on the businesses. So I think you know, it definitely reflects a bit of a change in sentiment, but more than anything, what goes on in the public markets is driven by capital flow rather than by an active decision by an investor. If you have no new capital coming into your fund, or worse, you've got redemptions from your fund, then you are a forced seller and it's very hard to buy something new. It always strikes me as such a pronounced effect, particularly here in Europe, because you've got very few now listed large software companies, certainly on the London Stock Exchange, and I think more broadly across Europe. And if I think about the value of our portfolio in aggregate, it's about $115 billion or something, which means only SAP is bigger as an aggregate software company in our, in our European market space. So this sort of, the value of the kind of the private market and the scale of the private market relative to the public markets is, is already pronounced, and it feels like we're going through another sort of reset or some, some kind of, at least an adjustment on kind of appetite to, to deploy equity. Yes, I mean, you know, certainly in, in UK terms, if you just looked in pure UK terms, our portfolio is worth more than the entire listed software sector in the UK. Uh, and in fact, I think if you took out the largest three or four European listed software companies, our portfolio is worth more than the entire remainder. So the private markets are now larger, at least in a European context, than the public markets. Actually, why don't I, I flip that around? Because you've done a lot of DD meetings recently with investors, Matthew. On the private side, what do you think we're seeing in terms of desire or reluctance to commit capital? 
So I think 2022 will have been a harder year to raise capital for, you know, for, for, for GPs like ourselves, for private equity firms like ourselves than previous years. Some of that is obviously coming off of the, just the sheer peaks of 2021. Um, we've largely completed our fundraising. So we've essentially been able to raise capital, I think, because people basically believe the long-term story. So they don't really see that much fundamental change in the need for software and automation, the kind of businesses we're backing, and frankly, a relatively resilient sort of recession-proof portfolio that we've put together. So their sort of confidence around, will our businesses trade well through a downturn? How will they trade? How we evidenced that previously in 2008, 2020 for COVID? And therefore, how do we commit capital if we, you know, people, pension funds are still getting, you know, capital and they still need to deploy it and they still need to earn those returns. So, but I think they are being more discriminating about where they commit it and which funds are, are benefiting from that. And do you think that's influencing investment committees thinking at all in valuation or the kind of businesses we're looking at? I think there is a sensitivity around pace of growth as opposed to is there growth. So if I think about adoption, it's the long-term trends are still there. More, more automation of workflow, more automation of, of jobs, more automation of, of processes that could be done by, 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 you know, by white-collar workers. Whether that gets sold at the same velocity in 2023 as it would have been sold in 2020 is where you're trying to make a calibration at an investment committee. I have a long list of or, or long queue of investment bankers coming to my office telling me about how the public markets are oversold and next year 2023 is going to be the year of the P2P and you know we should be we should be dusting off our files as they as they literally say. Do you buy that? Do you think we're going to have a whole bunch of things going uh, going private next year that, that that will continue to be a very significant trend? I think it will continue to be a trend. I mean, without wanting to um, uh, to insult the investment banking community too much, there is a slight tendency for advisors to come and tell you what they are seeing. And um, what we are seeing out there in the market right now is a lot of P2Ps, and obviously we've participated um, in some of that. So I think we will continue at current valuations. We will continue to see P2Ps because they look attractive. The the challenge is more execution than it is opportunity or attractive valuation. And yeah, I'm not sure we're quite in a world yet where a 25-30% premium gets you all the businesses you want to buy. I think we're still in a world where boards have last year's peak in the back of their mind. I mean, that's certainly our experience, which is the correction from last year was so pronounced, right? I guess last year was such a leap from 2019-20, you know, it's probably almost doubling of revenue multiple for unprofitable companies. That then dropped, obviously, very significantly in the early part of this year. If you then really think about what it takes to get a P2P done, premium significant um, and probably above history and again you're so the sort of the traded share price is not necessarily the greatest indicator of what it would really take to get a to get a deal to happen. Yes definitely I mean yeah, the price on the screen is an indication of what the last person traded you know in some cases half a dozen shares at. It's not the price even that an institutional buyer might be able to buy five or ten percent of the company at or that an institutional seller might be able to sell five or ten percent of the company at. I sometimes wonder if it would actually be easier to buy five or ten percent of a very large private company if we think of the liquidity we see in a, in a business like Visma than it is to buy the equivalent public asset as, uh, or a chunk of the equivalent public asset. And mixed with the usual sort of private equity incentives and governance model as opposed to a public model. Yes, exactly, yes. And I think you know, that's still, the, governance is still such a big difference and it's not, it's not just the, the paper-based governance people worry about having to declare the salary of all the executives and those kind of things, it's the more fundamental stuff. If you look at the change in environment over the last three years from a valuation perspective, the behaviours that would have been appropriate to drive shareholder value in 2019 were dramatically different to the behaviours that were appropriate in 2021 and now they're reversed again. So if you're setting a management incentive plan in 2019 
and that incentive plan was, let's say, add two percentage points to margin each year and allow your growth to fade by a percentage point. In 2019, that would have been a really sensible thing to do and have been value accretive. By 2021, you'd have been hemorrhaging value if you'd been trading one point of growth for two of margin. Yet now we're back in a position where it's the right thing. So if you set your incentive plan in 2019, in 2021, you'd be feeling pretty depressed as a chief exec. Whereas whatever the remuneration committee set in 2021, it's gonna, if it was a very growth-driven plan, is going to look pretty bad this year. That's a tough way to run a company. And that's a public market environment. That's a kind of board level or sort of institutional shareholder sort of directive or direction that you, you sense from, from 2019 through to 21, 22 that you're talking about. Yes. I, mean, I think you know, some of the shareholders do have a longer term perspective. And you know, they will say, we expect a company to be driven this way for value and you know, don't worry too much about the market. But you know, in the end, the shares are changing hands and the same group of shareholders that supported a remuneration committee in 2019 might all have sold their positions by 2021. So yes, I think it's a... It's difficult for a company to say on top of what the right thing is to do, not just for the shareholders they spoke to, but their current shareholders, when the market's changing so much. So we opened up earlier on around recession, and obviously there is slowing economies, there's interest rate pressure, there's disposable spend pressure in, in a lot of our economies. Fundamentally changed appetite for software adoption? Fundamentally changed the way automation is moving, or no change? So I think no overall change the structural drivers are there clearly if companies have a bit less money and a few more of them are going out of business then you sell a lot less new business but in terms of your cross-sell upsell renewal those kind of things you know, sort of the, the, the value of the customer base I think that's largely unchanged uh, what we are seeing in the US is definitely more negative guidance around sales cycles particularly new business sales cycles and I did a little bit of analysis of the Q2 results from US listed software companies about 40 companies and just over a third of them uh, had a negative guidance for the next 12 months and in almost every case that was blamed on the sales cycle. So you know, it's definitely getting a little bit tougher to sell new business. So it feels like there's a trade-off between sort of shorter term incrementally, can I sell new, new products, can I get new logos, how fast am I getting adoption of product sets versus the medium long term which remains I think very vibrant on automation, you know, work, pressure on wages is inevitably going to drive automation, which is going to make people try new software, which is going to try and automate more business process, which again, has just been a long-term driver, which I think tends to accelerate in periods like this. Yes, I mean, it's quite interesting. I, I had a summer holiday in Singapore, which is, tends to be quite an advanced economy, because it's a reasonably small city, so things can take, on quite, take off quite fast. And uh, when you walk into almost anything other than a very high-end restaurant in Singapore now, there's a barcode on your table. Nobody has menus. You scan the barcode, everyone does that on their phone, everyone orders from the menu, it all goes to the kitchen. You think, well, okay, that's, that's saved having a member of waiting staff. But actually, it's much more fundamental than that because a restaurant used to have almost no stock control. If you want to know how much rice or broccoli you had left at the end of the day, you went in the pantry and you, you counted the stuff out. Well, now that everybody's ordering electronically, you've got really good insight into your stock control and the flow. You can then have automated ordering. You can have a whole bunch of stuff out the back end in terms of B2B process that never existed before. So a potentially small change can be the tipping point for a lot of very significant change out the back. I guess it's an extension of the continued trend we've done for many years, right? Which is this ultimately, there's sort of, it's, what is it, nearly 11 years since Software Was Eating the World was published in the, in the New York Times, and we're still in the early stages, right? There's still, essentially, SaaS penetration, I think, is below 20% in most sort of vertical application markets. And so the adoption of like sophisticated software with very high performance is still, frankly, in its, in its very early stages in a bunch of these, a bunch of these industry sectors. Yes, and I think you, know, you still you see it all the time. You know, I picked on leisure as an industry because leisure has, in some ways, been quite advanced, but in some ways, uh, very very human dependent, and obviously that's changing. 
But yeah, we see it in all kinds of things, whether there's accounting software, your markets we think are saturated, and then we see a load of new opportunities coming up. So yes, we're still definitely very early. And of course, all these penetration stats you see tend to be you know, sort of penetration against the existing installed estate. But what we also know from SaaS is it just drives a massive wave of adoption by never-never users, uh, who for the first time can suddenly use software without, without all the cost of installing and configuring and operating. They can just use it. So I'm going to put you on the spot slightly as a final question. Public markets going to bounce back, hold steady? Are we, are we flat now? Do, we, do you think we're at the end of the sell-off? We'll be back in six months to see what the real answer to the <laughs> question is. What's your, what's your sense? So I think we are definitely through most of the worst. So from a personal perspective, since about June, I've been putting money back into the public markets in a reasonable uh, way, at least for me. So I think we're through, through the worst of it. I think from a structural perspective, the public markets are still undercooking the growth opportunity. And I mean, we spoke at a, at a conference a couple of months ago overseas about this, about if you look at what's implied by current valuations in terms of the terminal growth rates, you take your today's cash flows and you say, okay, what are those going to fade to over the next 10 years? What's the implied assumption in, in stock prices today? And it's broadly that the software industry growth will fade to about 2% in 10 years' time. It'll fade to GDP growth. I mean, you know, we just don't see any of that in the industries we're investing in. That same assumption was made 10 years ago. So based on the assumptions people make in 2012, the industry is supposed to be growing at about 2% today. The reason it's not is why S&P software index in the US is now $5 trillion, not $1 trillion. It's because it actually continued to grow double digit. And so we've got much more profit than we thought we'd have, and we've got more growth. So I think the structural side of things, that 2% assumption is still wrong. So whether the market sort of whether you get a rapid correction of people saying actually 20, 25 times is the right level to price things at, which implies you're a, a higher but still not ludicrous percentage growth at the end, or whether it's just a more gradual realisation over years, I'm not sure. But I'd say from a, from a structural perspective, yes, we're undervalued. Just to make it very clear to anyone listening, we're obviously not giving you investment advice here. This is purely, <laughs> purely David Tom's own personal opinions of where the market is. Uh, thank you very much for your time, David. We'll be back in, back in six months to see where we really are. Excellent. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks for listening to Orbit, the HG podcast. If you'd like to find out more about HG and our work building businesses that change how we all do business, subscribe to our newsletter at hgcapital.com forward slash newsletters.